on the pre-rail podcast this week, um, an emotional story. Amy Silvis from Silvis Capital shares with us how just a few short years ago, she retired from her job, medically retired. Um, talk about perspective and talk about real challenges. And Amy walks us through a forced medical retirement just a few short years ago and how she took that and made that an opportunity and is now uh, sitting on top of a $100 million portfolio and 750 units. It is a, a real amazing story, an inspirational story. Amy Silvis, Amy Silvis this week on the Pre-Rail Podcast. Don't miss it. It's a really great episode. Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Rail. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We've got a treat for you today. We're joined by Amy Silvis. She's the founder and principal of Silvis Capital, a Really interesting story, folks. Um, Amy came over from a completely different segment in the market. We're going to get into that a little bit and has now put $100 million, just about $100 million and 750 plus or minus, minus units in, into management under the portfolio. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you again for having me. No, it's my pleasure. Anytime we can bring on a pro that can talk about their journey and connect some of the dots for investors of all different sizes and shapes and levels. It's important that we share that because this community is, it, it's a wonderful community. It really is. And it's about sharing what we've learned and helping the next person in their journey. So I agree completely. I appreciate that. So let's talk first about how you ended up in real estate. You have a bio, you have a, a, background in pharmaceutical and biotech, correct? Yes, I do. I do. So how do we go? How do we go from pharmaceutical and biotech to real estate ownership? Yes. Yeah. So like, how long do you have? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. And if you want to dive in a little deeper, you can take me there and I'll follow you. Um, I was essentially looking for a way to not have to trade my time for money. I was born with a health condition where I was only supposed to live to be around eight or nine years old. Uh, I just turned 42 yesterday. You can see some of the gray in my hair. So as part of that, I wasn't sure how long I'd be able to work. I wasn't sure how I would be able to have income as the illness progressed. It's called cystic fibrosis. We can talk about it if you want. So essentially, while I was in biotech, getting sicker and sicker, spending more and more time in the hospital, I was frantically looking for a way to not have to be dependent on my family if and when I had to quit my job because I wasn't healthy enough. And thankfully, I came upon that amazing purple book I think many of us have read called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And this concept of passive income hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh my gosh, there's something out there where I could earn money even when I wasn't that healthy. So that's that's the long and the short of it. We can dive deeper if you'd like. So you pick up Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, a book that if you're in the investment game, um, I don't see how it hasn't played 
some sort of transformative, pivotal piece in your journey. Yes. Uh, you pick this book up, you start to understand the concept of trading time for money and the limitless, really limitless potential that you can derive from passive income via real estate. Um, what happens next? I mean, you know, yes. we don't go from that to this. So, so now what? <laughs> no. So this was in the early 2010s and I thought, okay, great. I'm going to find people to passively invest with. I didn't have a ton of money, but I had enough to where I could find great experienced people, specifically in multifamily, to invest some money with and learn this game. And in the meantime, while balancing my pharma and biotech job and the full-time job that was to care for myself with cystic fibrosis, I was trying to find a way to break into the active game as well. Failed many times, um, had, had a few blunders, a few things that, that didn't work out. I'm in Los Angeles, so I was looking in you know, Vegas and Phoenix, like a lot of people in my state do. So yeah, it was, it was bad. It was really hard for me to get out of the kind of the limited partner passive investing space because I wanted to be a GP. Fast forward, I ended up having to medically retire from my job in 2017. Really, really tough. It was uh, pretty devastating. I loved what I did, um, but a miracle drug for my illness came out in 2019, right before uh, COVID. And I was off to the races. I had laid down all the groundwork. I had made all my mistakes and I was ready to go. So I made that transition to being a full-time investor once my health improved. Well, God bless. I mean, that's amazing. Thank you. Um, I, it's perspective, folks. When, when you're hung up, and this happens to us so often, we're our worst enemy you know, there's a lot of famous quotes that speak to this, but why do we remain in prison when the door is wide open? Mm. And here, Amy is talking about real stuff, real issues that are literally, we're talking about life or death. And Amy finds the courage and a pathway to overcome. So those of you who are out there sweating the small stuff, think about this, reflect back on, on Amy's challenges and how she's been able to take what seems like an impossible circumstance and turn it into this amazing portfolio. So let's talk about the fun stuff now. Yeah. You're investing as an LP and most times as an, as an LP, um, not because the GPs are trying to hide knowledge or they're trying to keep things away from you. That's the role of an LP. A GP wants to be able to operate. Uh, you've got limited rights. You're there to basically fund the transaction and watch the returns, but you're not there every step of the way. So was there a mentor or someone that you connected with that helped bridge that gap for you? Yes. Well, thankfully, part of my criteria to passively invest was finding a group that was open and willing to let me uh, join them and, and you know, listen in and, and learn a little bit. But yes, also, I definitely uh, enrolled in one of those guru programs, which I know some people don't feel so great about. It served me extremely well. And the most important part, at least for me, was getting the, the, the network that that program provided and, and all the, you know, in addition to the knowledge. So yeah, there were definitely multi-factors there uh, in terms of getting my education and getting experience to make the transition. Okay, so you have a few of these LP deals moving along. Hopefully you're, you're collecting returns at or above what's forecasted. Yeah. Um, now it's time to take that step and, and 
run deals as a GP? Uh, are you running these solo or do you have a team? That was probably the biggest inflection point for myself was realizing that I could go further faster with business partners. I didn't really understand how many people, even if you just saw, you know, one business name or one group of partners uh, for an investment, there are really a lot of different businesses that come together to make these deals work. So yes, I did uh, hook up with a partnership team with folks that were, again, more experienced than me, but that had a need for what I could provide uh, in terms of sourcing deals. And it ended up being a really great partnership. Okay. So you're on the deal sourcing side of this. Uh, right. I, I am. I also still do uh, investor relations as well. So I do a bit of both. So maybe the most in, important decision when you're steering the ship is where are we going to invest? Yes. Right. Can you yes. walk the audience through how Silvis Capital has made those decisions and where are the, the places that you've, you've decided to put a flag down and make acquisitions in? Yes, this is. I, as we talked about before we started recording, I really love this topic, so I'm excited to talk about it for so many reasons. But my mentor said, live where you want, invest where it makes sense. And I think that's one of the greatest things about these syndications and these larger multifamily deals that we do is, you know, I'm in LA. I don't want to buy in LA. You couldn't pay me to buy in LA. We can look across the country and identify, hey, where are people moving? Where is the economy growing? Where are you know states or local municipalities that love investors, that love landlords, and are willing to be fair and balanced with tenants' rights and landlord rights? So yeah, we I am constantly doing that market research. And as you can imagine, over the past several years, there are lots of exciting markets that have emerged throughout the United States uh, that have proven to be great places to invest. And to your point, you know, there are two ways that we have appreciation or increase in value for our multifamily deals. One is the market itself, all, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. And then of course, how we run our business uh, and our business plan with the investment specifically. So yeah, happy to dive further into, you know, how we do this market research and what all that looks like, if you'd like. Yeah, I, I'd love to. I'm, I'm a deal junkie and, and emerging markets um, has been kind of my thing for the last, gosh, it goes back to, 2007, 2008, when wow. we started to see the decentralization of retail. That was really the very first thing we had seen where retailers that historically would pick that flagship location and they're lost leader locations for them. They're paying insane rent to have a presence in a marquee spot somewhere in Times Square or a, a similar location. And as the digital space began to disrupt retail in the most intimate way. Right. Retailers started to figure out, hey, we could reach these people on their phone in a very personal way. Uh, perhaps it doesn't make sense to have those lost leader locations anymore. And we saw retailers start to decentralize from the best spots to secondary yeah. spots to outer boroughs and beyond. Um, and from that, we had figured, okay, this this is going to continue now. Legislative risks are increasing. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, we had seen crime started to hit a trajectory that was on, on the rise. Costs were soaring. It was just a matter of time until investors started to measure, is the risk worth the reward anymore? And then COVID hit. 
everyone's patterns are, are changed forever and yes. it kind of put jet fuel on that. So what, what are the factors, Amy, that you look for when you're identifying these emerging markets? Yes. Number one is job growth. You know, how, as a multifamily investor, how are my residents going to be able to pay their rent? And then, you know, that allows me to pay, pay the debt on the, on the property and of course give returns to my investors. So if we're looking at markets where great jobs are coming to the market, companies are relocating, salaries are increasing, those are all huge green flags to us of, hey, you know, this is a market where we could really prosper and really serve our residents. The second one is, again, that population growth, which tends to come, you know, pre now here after COVID or however you want to phrase this time might be a little different because there is remote work, but we still like to see net migration. People follow those jobs. Um, low cost of living is another, is another factor as well. One of the reasons we love the Midwest and uh, some parts of the Southeast. And then, as I alluded to, you know, a business-friendly and investor-friendly legislature or environment in a given state and municipality. Um, there are a lot of nuances that we found, even you know, if a state at the state level is very friendly to investors, some of the local municipalities may not be. Uh, so really digging deep into the weeds and creating what is truly this raw spreadsheet where we collect all these different data points, track them over time, and uh, come up with where we think the best place to invest would be. Now, do you do you have one, two, three um, resources that you can point the audience to where you get a, a, a fair bit of that data that you're using? Yeah, one of my favorite is called the Milken Report. Some of you, if you're of a certain age, you may remember Michael Milken. <laughs> that name may have a different connotation to you, but he started this incredible foundation that's actually located out here in Los Angeles, and he publishes an annual report that looks at growing cities, emerging markets throughout the United States, and ranks them on all sorts of data points that I think if you were to look at just one resource, it's a fantastic one to look at. And I would challenge you to not just look at the absolute rankings but take a look at the movers over the past year. So we're looking at trends, right? So it's not just, you know, Austin's number one. Yes, we get it. Austin, Austin, Austin. But, you know, where has some place like Huntsville, Alabama, what's the trajectory been over the past few years? Has it moved a lot? Has it not? Has it gone down? So they do a great job of calling out the movers and shakers of individual cities throughout the U.S. and kind of the rationale behind it. I think it's a great resource. So you begin pulling your data points together. Yes. Um, how much of the analysis includes, if at all, boots on the ground? Yes, boots on the ground are imperative. I mean, I obviously travel uh, to, to the location as well, but whether we're partnering with people who have great experience in the area or folks that have um, already a footprint in the area or just getting to know uh, other investors, you know, this real estate network is, is pretty tight. Um, even the economic development folks in a given city can be great boots on the ground that, you know, they're willing to, to talk up their city and give us good information or the local police department. There are lots of ways to get that on the ground information, but yeah, having business partners that are local is imperative to us. So you pick a location, um, you decide this is a place that Silvis Capital is going to make acquisitions. Yes. Uh, is there 
a model that you follow? Is there economies of scale? Do you want to pick multiple assets in a particular market? What does that look like? Yeah, economies of scale are massive. They're, they're, they're so important. And anyone who's been in the single family space that's transitioned to the, the larger multifamily space understands this. For us, the magic number is 100 to 150 plus doors in a given apartment complex. And the reason is, you know, there are a whole multitude of reasons, but one is the fact that we can have a really sophisticated or institutional type property management company. It's not, you know, no offense to the mom and pops property managers out there, but there is a level of sophistication that our investors, our residents, and ourselves really demand for property management, all the way to the ability to having enough doors, enough revenue, and again, scale to have a full-time you know, repairs and maintenance person. That means we can address our residents' needs, be very responsive. You know, the fact that this person is on staff and salaried, full-time leasing agent. There are so many things that give us, you know, a great advantage, both from investment returns, but also in just how we're able to treat our residents and care for them to give the experience that we know that they deserve. So emerging markets to, to us has changed over the last 10 or 15 years, the definition yeah. of that. Um, there are geopolitical, social, a number of different factors that drive emerging markets, yes. uh, that drive their life cycle, their sustainability. What is your interpretation of the last few years? And what do you see? I know we don't have a crystal ball, but what yes. do you see into the future with these secondary and tertiary markets? It is an interesting time, right? Because all of us have heard this you know, work from home, uh, companies are trying to drag their, their employees back to the office. And I think some of these probably more so tertiary, tinier markets really experienced a lot of attention and net migration because of the work from home phenomenon. Uh, people no longer had to choose a geographic location to live based on where their employment was. You know, I think some of that is here to stay, but there may be, you know, some equilibrium. The pendulum may be swinging a little bit more towards the middle. So. Uh, for us, we're, a, we're excited to follow tertiary markets and understand them, but we consider them to be slightly more risky and a bit more volatile. If we study them and see you know, a consistent pattern of safety and stability and an upward trajectory over a good number of years, it's definitely something we would consider. Uh, but we feel more closely, uh, we feel more safe and more confident in secondary markets that surround some of these, these primary markets that are so stable and doing so well. Does that answer your question? It, it does. It, it answers the, the first piece entirely. Uh, yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are long-term now in these secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah. The, the COVID impact is very real. The decentralization yes. trends are being covered um, certainly not entirely, but they are being covered more readily now that we're seeing in the big cities. What do you think this means for the big cities, New York, Chicago, LA? I'm in New York, you're in LA. Yes. Uh, yes. We've seen a massive change here over the last three or four years. Okay. What does that mean for the big cities? What does it mean for these secondary and tertiary markets? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think decentralization, that's such a great term, and, and it really resonates with the research that we've done and how we're, you know, what our outlook looks like. Um, you know, I think there's always a role for major cities. There, there's a lot that can be provided that, that residents enjoy. 
But, you know, I focus very strongly on demography, right? And the millennials are the largest generation in United States history, looking at their preferences. They're coming into their household formation years, having children and living, you know, having more space, uh, having more ease of accessing services. They're driving some suburban and secondary, maybe even tertiary living. So that's going to be balanced with what we see projected with baby boomers as they retire and them wanting to be able to have, you know, easily walkable cities uh, and maybe might be more drawn to some major markets for healthcare uh, treatment and such. But yeah, I, I don't think from my vantage point in my research that this trend towards secondary and tertiary population growth is going to end. Uh, and I think the major cities are gonna to continue to lose population as a result. Uh, I agree. And it's uh, it's rare to have a guest on that's bold enough to candidly say what, what you've just said, because it's not a popular thing, right? But this is the reality of what we've seen and it yeah, it's driving our decisions, and it has driven our decisions for years now, uh, we candidly don't see how the big cities stem the tide at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, the numbers are, are shocking. And once the big companies, as you had touched on earlier, began to adopt this mindset, and instead of fighting it and insisting on having folks in the office, they've said, you know what? This is a more efficient way to work. Our workers seem to be happier. We can save money. We could trade those expensive digs in. Okay, that I feel like was a, a really important threshold that the cities had to make every effort to ensure that that did not happen. And they haven't done that. And it is happening. Correct. And we see it in the office space. I mean, I don't think a day goes by even the lay press doesn't talk about office vacancies. That's, you know, it's just numbers, right? It really isn't rocket science. It takes a while to, you know, dig in and really analyze and such. But yeah, the numbers really don't lie. No, they don't. So could we talk a little bit about um, your typical deal? I know there's no such thing, but what are some uh, investment objectives or criteria what are things that investors could expect if they wanted to, to reach out and speak to you about a typical deal? Definitely. So yes, multifamily, we, we do some flex industrial as well to take advantage of some of that onshoring that's happening in the United States. But our bread and butter is really apartments, large apartment complexes, anywhere from 100 to 300 doors. And we love what's called a value add strategy. So we pick these markets, where populations are growing, where jobs are growing, income is growing, and residents are really looking for nicer renovated units. So we typically buy 1980s, 1990s built apartment complexes that haven't been renovated. We're not really interested. I think some people think of the apartment game of, oh, you know, there's a supply constraint. And so you just raise rents on residents because they don't have any other choice. That's not us. We want to provide a higher quality product because residents can afford it and want it, not because we're forcing it on them. So we wanna provide what's called a value add strategy uh, to residents and renovate those units, typically hold the property for anywhere from three to five years, sell the property, give our investors you know, distributions along the way, in addition to some of the capital gains that we make uh, from selling the property. 
and then identify the next emerging market because those change, right? Uh, and then go deploy our capital into the next emerging market. So as you're evaluating deals, um, the role that you seem to be spearheading at, at your firm, to me, is, is the most important piece. And it's also in part what I do. So I tend to lean <laughs> heavily into it. Yes, but yes. Um, without deal flow, we can have all the investors in the world. Uh, yes. it, it doesn't matter. I, I think so many people, when they're starting in real estate, have it backwards and they feel there's this fear on raising capital and accessing capital, right? right. But yep. if you have the deal, you're going to find the capital. For sure. So if you're looking in the right spots, of course. So what do you do, Amy, to ensure that there's a steady flow of quality deals that you can evaluate at any given time to give your investors that leg up from Jump Street? It's a million dollar question or maybe even more than that because it, you know, candidly, the past 12 months have been tough, right? The Fed's raised rates tremendously and sellers aren't quite capitulating in terms of you know, what they think their properties are worth. So I tell my investors that I'm probably gonna be one of the most conservative people that they may work with. I may have two, maybe three opportunities a year at the most, um, simply because not that I'm not out there trying, but I'm investing my own money. I'm investing my parents' retirement savings. I wanna be the best steward of people's capital possible. And you know, thankfully people have a lot of choices out there. But yes, I've got incredible broker relationships. Thankfully, a history of you know being great to work with, doing what I'm saying I'm going to do, and closing. So brokers are happy and eager uh, to put deals in front of myself and my organization. And we have even had successful efforts being boots on the ground and contacting sellers directly. Um, I know brokers don't like to hear that, but sometimes that's what sellers want to do. So those relationships, this is a relationship business, whether you're asset managing, sourcing deals, you know, um, helping investors find a place to place their capital. So sourcing deals and those relationships, I think are what, what has given us so much success with having great deal flow over the past few years. I'm tongue tied, excuse me. So are you, or have you um, considered as the market has tightened any ground up or new construction or build to rent type deals? I have not at this point, again, putting on my very conservative Amy hat, the, the inflation and the increased risk that, we, that is inherent in development gives me a little bit of pause. It doesn't mean I'm not open to it, but the supply chains, I mean, I've seen even as just someone doing value add deals and renovating the supply chain constraints, what inflation has done to our expenses, our returns, our CapEx. So I'm the type of person that's going to take several years and be a little bit more slow to adopt to something not necessarily new, but new to me, like ground up development or, or build to rent uh, type of thing. So I'm very open. I'm always learning. I'm just not ready to pull that trigger right now. I do see some markets, though, in my market research that are really prime for that. So that wets my palate of, you know, hey, how can we help solve some of this housing shortage that we experience in some of these markets? So as you're pulling together your, your decks and you're ready to go to market with investors, 
what does a, a typical cap stack look like? What is the what are the debt ratios? How does a typical deal cash flow for you? Yeah, yeah. Typical again. I I pause on that. Um, so at this time, we're we're focusing on agency debt, anywhere from 50, 55, 60 loan to value. Um, we have done bridge debt in the past with rate caps. We've done just fine. That leverage was what was appropriate. It helped us get done what we needed to get done. I know bridge debt is a swear word nowadays, but I think it's appropriate for where it is. But yes, at this time, agency debt with a low loan to value um, and raising our construction costs, our CapEx costs from our investors. And then depending upon how large the deal is, we may have some pref equity, folks that are looking to you know, get that cash flow, but maybe they're not interested in participating in the upside or the sale. Um, upon the sale of the deal. And yes, then the rest are, yeah, our average retail investors that are that are looking to invest alongside of us passively. So, you know, bridge loans are fine as long as there are things like the rate caps and yes. there's the ability to extend. Yes. Uh, the way we we kind of phrase it for the audience is you need to make sure that you can always get to the other side of the rainbow and the the markets turn slowly um, but they're fairly predictable within certain boundaries. Uh, if you're paying attention, you'll have a good sense of when rates are going to start to creep up and when rates are going to start to, to creep down. But you have to understand the nuance of what happens behind that, right? As these bridge loans were, to us, it was very, very clear during the multifamily boom the smaller lenders filled a lot of these voids with the bridge debt, yes. but the bigger lenders sat on the sidelines and we observed them uh, go from sitting on the sidelines to starting to make inducements to investors, place 250,000 with us and we'll give you a, a bump on your, your rate, yeah. place a half a million dollars. And that was, a, in our mind, it was a, a, a planned process where they wanted to suck whatever capital they could out of those mid-cap and smaller banks yep. while the COVID money was running out, yes. deposits were starting to drop, and those bridge lenders, even if the notes were performing and the asset was performing, there needs to be an outlet at the end of that debt. There needs to be a place to go and refinance it, yes. uh, and we're starting to see the beginnings of this now where even performing notes uh, I believe you're going to start seeing that those notes become available at discounts um, because there's just the big banks are still not ready. They're sitting on the sidelines while this plays out. So it's okay as long as you're aware of what else is happening in the market and how do we get to the other side of the rainbow in the event our debt comes due during a, a time when banks don't lend. Yes, liquidity is 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 the name of the game. Whether it's you know yourself as an asset manager or the banks or yeah the system as a whole, it, it's it's imperative to monitor. So, what can uh, an investor do if if we have LPs in the audience that are interested in a a conservative model? I love that you mentioned you have your capital uh, in these deals. Sometimes you have family money in the deals. Sometimes. Skin in the game is super important to us. Um, where can investors find the information they need to to learn more and to perhaps reach out? Sure. So silviscapital.com, not the easiest thing to spell, but I trust that James will put it in the show notes. That's my website. 
I'm also extremely active on LinkedIn. I love to provide education, information. There's a lot of interaction. So if you're a LinkedIn person, I would highly recommend you go there. And um, I provide a lot of stuff for you to learn and, and understand what we do and how we can help folks. So before I let you go, give me one quick prediction. Where do we see rates from now to the next presidential election? Oh, yeah, they're going to be cut before the next presidential election. Call me jaded, but um, unfortunately, I don't think the Fed is as independent as they'd like us to believe. I Hot take. agree more. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful to chat with you, Amy. Congratulations. Yes. This is a wonderful story to hear. Thank you for sharing both the personal and the business side of it. Uh, of folks, Amy Silvis, Silvis Capital, appreciate the time. Everyone out there, please stay safe. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Thank you.